We began a new series last week um, called Lifehouse, and we began the series by, by talking about this really obscure teaching of Jesus, uh, Jesus talking to uh, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and they're, they're seeking some sign for him, from him, and uh, Jesus does this, this miracle, and he talks about uh, Satan as this strong guy, but, but there's this even stronger guy that's come and ha- has beaten Satan up and pushed him out of his house and taken all of his stuff. And then Jesus tells this story about a house. He says, once there was an evil, uh, evil spirit, uh, scripture says evil or unclean spirit that was, that was in the interior of a house, but, but was driven out, was forced out into the wilderness. And the spirit moves into the wilderness, and after finding nothing in the wilderness to, to occupy his mind or occupy his time or occupy his attention, he returns to the house where he came from. And when he gets back to the house, he finds everything in order. The house is cleaned and, and, and tidied up and straightened up, but it's empty. And so this evil, unclean spirit goes out and finds seven spirits, even worse than himself, and invites them to come and to live in the house, to live in the person. And Scripture says, Jesus says, that that person is worse off than before. And this teaching is about now that, that Easter has come, the resurrection has come, Jesus has come, and, and he, has, he has forgiven our sins. He has, he has cleansed our homes, cleansed our houses. But if we do not continue to fill our lives with the teachings of Jesus, if we don't continue to fill our lives with Jesus, if, if God creates this awesome space in us and we don't fill that space with good, what will inevitably happen? Something is going to fill that space, right? And so we began this series called, called Lifehouse, talking about our, our interior castles. It's a series about what is, what is on the inside of the cup. And uh, Jesus uh, spends lots of time with his disciples. Uh, Jesus is the rabbi, which means teacher. A disciple is, is basically a student, is a learner. And so the, the disciples follow in Jesus' footsteps to, to fill their lives with his teachings. They, they are his students. They're gathered around at his feet seeking wisdom, seeking knowledge, seeking to remodel the interior castle, their, their interior hearts. And then in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, after the resurrection, and just before Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus flips the script and says, no longer are you just disciples, no longer are you just students, but now you are teachers. Look what it says, Matthew 28, verse 19. I think we have it up there. There it is. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God. And then he says this very next word. And what is that first word? Teach. And he says, you who have been my students, now your role is to teach. And I love this. 
I love the idea of education because education comes with this this promise. Everyone in here who is who has been in education or been an educator or or been a part of a class know you know the promise of teaching. The promise of teaching is that change is possible, right? Teaching says you can teach an old dog new tricks. The, the promise of education, the promise of learning, the promise of teaching is that change is possible. A new world is possible. And so we who have been students are now become teachers. We carry with us this message of new life, this message of hope, this message of promise, this message of change. But anyone who reads that word, teach, anyone who feels that imperative, that command from Jesus Christ, teach them to obey all the commands that I've given you. He's given, Jesus is telling us, we are now in the teaching role. And so the question becomes, what are the essential commands that we're supposed to teach others to obey. What are, what are the commands of Jesus? What are the teachings of Jesus that, that are essential that, that we are f- to fill our own lives with, to fill our houses with? And at the same time, what are the teachings, the commands that we are to teach, to share with others? So what are the essentials? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, uh, he, he goes up onto this hill, this low rise, and he delivers a, a teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard of it before? And, and in this teaching, if you're, if you're looking for, okay, I'm, I'm a student teacher, I'm supposed to be teaching, what are, what are the things I'm supposed to be teaching? The Sermon on the Mount would be a great place to start. And Jesus begins by saying, blessed art. He teaches about humility and mercy and good deeds and reconciliation and purity and love and generosity and prayer and wealth and devotion. But if you summed up all of that Sermon on the Mount, if you you condensed it to one idea, to one point, to one thesis statement, you could could condense it to... uh, uh, um, maybe a good way to remember it is Crush from Finding Nemo. Do you guys remember Crush? Go ahead and show that, show that image. <coughs> Sermon on the Mount, Crush from Finding Nemo. Do you remember Crush? I, I know this, it's been a while since this movie came out. Uh, where is Crush from? Yeah, he's from the tropics. He's from Hawaii, and so he talks a little bit different. Do you remember this? Crush is this Hawaiian surfer dude, right? And if you go to Disney World right now, there's this great, uh, great scene. You can go to Crush, and he'll talk to the audience, and he'll, he'll say, like, lots of woes and mans and dude and radical. And you know what I'm saying? Like, that's Crush. Uh, but Crush actually knows the, the thesis, the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's a word he says in the movie a bunch of times. As they're riding the current and, and they're surfing these waves, crush one of his favorite words, one of his favorite slogans is the, is, the, is the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says the word, righteous. Right? You remember this? Righteous. And when they do a cool trick or something happens, he's like, righteous. And in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 33, the theme 
of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Go ahead and put it up there on the screen. Jesus, right in the middle of that teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, teaching about all of these different things, says, here it is. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteous. And if you do, everything you need will be taken care of. So at the core of of Jesus' teachings that we are supposed to be teaching is, is crush, reminding us to teach about being righteous. But what is it? What does it mean to live righteously? Um, my dad told, a, told this story to us. Uh, I've got a an older brother, a younger brother, and then the baby of our family is my sister. And she has gotten everything she has ever wanted, ever, 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 ever. And uh, height is kind of one of these things that run in our family. And so my, my, my sister has always been very, very slim and very tall. And, and so she actually, while we were, the, the rest of us were cutting grass for five bucks an hour or whatever, she was actually doing modeling gigs for hundreds of dollars an hour. And she was, she was doing all of these things, which didn't, didn't help our affection for her any. Um, when my sister was uh, getting close to graduate from college, uh, she had a job interview in Atlanta. She was in college in Alabama, and so she had, she had gotten kind of dolled up and had her nice dress on and her makeup and her hair was done, and she looked, you know, she was looking as good as she could look as my sister, and uh, she got in her car, and, and she was just going to spend the day. She was going to drive to Atlanta for this job interview as, 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 a, as a college student, do the interview, and then just turn around and come home. And on her, her way back, in the middle of downtown Atlanta, in the middle of all the hubbub of, of that traffic, her car starts to have issues, and her car actually breaks down, and it breaks down in that worst possible place because she's in the far, far, far left-hand lane, and so she pulls over into that, that no-man's land in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? She's not on the side of the road. Her car is now stranded in the middle of like eight lanes of traffic uh, on either side of her. And uh, I, I don't know if this was before cell phones or her cell phone wasn't working, but she didn't have a phone. And so, uh, as my dad tells us, every dad's worst nightmare, she gets out of her car and she begins to walk. Because she's got nothing else to do, doesn't know what to do, doesn't know where to go, and she's going to walk until maybe she can find a place to cross the, cross the interstate or, or, or cross and maybe, maybe get to a phone, maybe get some help. And so she's out of her car and she's dressed to the nines. And she's walking down the center of the, the, the median, and um, a truck full of construction workers pulls up behind her. Um, you know the type, right? And they begin to, to honk and shout, and, hey, baby, we'll give you a ride. Come on. And they just kind of roll up behind her slowly, and they just follow her. And she said, no, thank you, no. And she's trying to ignore them, but they're, they're just right there. And if you hear, heard my dad tell this story, it's, it's a completely different perspective. 
And when the tension is, is just about, about to break, uh, uh, an older woman, an older single woman, sees my sister, veers across four lanes of traffic, and gets right in front of my sister and says, you get in this car right now. <laughs> and my sister does. And uh, the lady is eventually able to, to get her some help and get her connected to some help and, and take care of her. And my favorite part of the story is that this older single woman is just blessing my sister out the whole way. What are you doing? Where, why would you be in this situation? You know, like, why did you put yourself in this kind of situation? You know what I'm saying? Just letting her have it, which I love. <laughs> we know what it is to do right, don't we? Um, I, I think that's probably why we were all given middle names, so we would know the difference between right and wrong. You know? You only use a middle name when you're wrong, so I'm going to teach you right. You know, it's this, we know the difference between right and wrong. Even my two-year-old canon, he knows the difference between right and wrong. If he's doing something that he's not supposed to, all I have to do is call his name, and he has one of these, like, you know, matrix moments of falling back. What? Me? I don't know what you're talking about. We know what it is to be Righteous. And righteousness isn't just thing that's that's just just born, you know, it isn't just an action, but it, it's something deeper within us. Theologians de define righteousness like this. Go ahead and put that next slide up there. Righteous, they say, is the state of him who is such as he ought to be. Righteous is this, this state of, of living in a world, not where everything is right, but but where we are living rightly towards others, we are living rightly towards our neighbors and towards our spouse. Not, not that the world is right, but that we are choosing this path of, of rightness. And if you ever had that feeling when you do the right thing, even when nobody else notices and you feel in yourself, this is how it ought to be. This is who I was created to be. And at the core of Jesus' teachings, he says to live out of that place, to live righteous. But righteousness is, is like I said, it's deeper than just doing the right things, but it is, it is feeling the right things. Does that make sense? It is, it is thinking rightly it is it is feeling rightly and it it is also to to see rightly let me show you what i mean i'm going to get the teenagers why don't you guys come up here and help me out for just for a second teens i just want y'all to come and let's give a hand for our teens they're awake Woo! <laughs> all right i want y'all to just come sit right over here right right in this space right Get close to each other. I'm sure you all took a shower this morning. All right. Now I want you all to face me, to look at me. To, I mean, that's not going to be good enough. You're going to actually have to orient your bodies towards me. So we teach the, I teach the teens on Sunday morning. It's really fun, and it's just like this. They're always very quiet and very polite and right at my feet. Um, 
So this is the position that the church has taken. It is a position where we are to orient our lives around a central figure who is not the preacher, hopefully, but is Christ, right? This has been the teaching of the church that, that our attention, that our focus is to be on Christ and to be on this person. But there's an issue with this position. Because where are our backs facing? But have you seen this dichotomy happening in the church? Have you seen this, this uh, even taught that we are to face Christ, we are to give our lives to Christ, we are to intently focus on the teachings of Jesus Christ and ignore everything else. And it creates this distinction between Christ and what's out there. What do we call it? The world. But look what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. That verse we read. You remember what he says? All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the very next word is what? Teach involves reorientation. All right, so I, I, need, um, <laughs> I need a Christ-like figure. Um, which of you is the most godly? AJ, perfect. Come up here. All right, so I want you to just, just stick with this visual for a second. We gather our lives around. Our focus and tension is on Christ Jesus, right? We are the students. He is the teacher. But then in Matthew chapter 28, look what Jesus does. That's a change of perspective, isn't it? Where's the AJ looking? Where's AJ looking? Yeah. Now, who does the AJ see? Now, don't get me wrong. AJ is not Christ. I love you. And you're not here to displace or replace Christ, which sometimes preachers get, get, get in the way of that. But AJ is here to align himself with Christ. To see, to value, to think, to feel the same things that Christ feels. To see others. Isn't it, a, isn't it an interesting thing that happens in our churches when we are sometimes so focused on Christ, focused on Christ, focused on Christ, focused on Christ, when all of the time Christ focuses on where? The world. We make it a thing where we run from the world, stay, for, stay away from the world. It's bad, it's evil, and yet Christ said, I've come to seek and to save. In fact, I'm sending you out into that place. But this is an intimidating position. AJ, you're doing awesome. Because AJ, your, your job isn't just to 
align yourself with Christ. Your, your job is to teach. So, go ahead. Now, as Christians, have any of you ever felt like this? You've probably asked, what could I possibly have to offer? I, I'm nothing compared to Christ. I'm nothing compared to my teacher. How can I possibly teach? What could I possibly have to offer? And Jesus subtly comes behind us and whispers in our ear. All right. Who is the teacher here? AJ. What was the message? Where did it come from? It came from Christ. It came from above. Now, it's easy to mess up this relationship. Uh, and in fact, we do it all the time. We, we totally mess this up because their focus is supposed to be on him. And his focus is supposed to be on them, but what happens? Um, AJ, do you have a like a? I, I'm, do you have any kind of electronic device? Oh, really? <laughs> surprise, surprise. Okay, AJ. Um, um, just like our class today, why don't you go ahead and uh, take a look at that electronic device, that iPhone we don't, uh, or uh, or whatever. And I'm going to put these on you. These are what are these? All right, <laughs> there you go. Go ahead and plug it in. And uh, why don't you just, I don't know, watch the fight, um, pick a song you like, just pick a video, anything you like. What just happened? Have you guys seen this happen before? And as soon as he does this, what are you guys going to do? Do you guys happen to have electronic devices? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Where's his focus? Where's theirs? All right, you guys can take a seat. Oh, that looks fun. Um, all right, let's give them a hand as they take a seat. Thank you. All right, a couple of things about, about righteousness, uh, about this, this example. What I want you to see is, first off, that Jesus' focus has always been on the world. And that's something the church forgets. Jesus' focus has always been on the lost. His focus has always been on the hurting. His focus has always been on those who are difficult. And sometimes this message gets out in our churches that our job is to focus on Jesus and everyone else can fend for themselves. 
And Jesus says, if you're going to do this right, if you're going to be right, to live righteously, you're going to have to change your perspective of the world. You're going to have to change your perspective of those people around you. You know, this picture of, of headphones is, is an incredibly powerful picture of why the church in, the North, in North America is failing. Because we are too easily distracted. If you go into the gym, you see people running on the treadmills wearing what? Headphones. When you see people driving down the interstate, you see them looking at what? At the dinner table. Some of you probably felt this. There's, uh, there really is this addiction to these, to these things, addiction to screens. Uh, we see it in our seven-year-old already. Um, maybe even just watching AJ pull that thing out. So did, you, did you feel something in you that said, oh, man, I probably need to check? Have you, have you seen this? Have you found yourself unable to concentrate because I need to focus on uh, maybe, it, maybe it's your schedule or, or maybe it's your email or you just want to know what the weather or what's the latest news or, or what's happening? We live with technology to, to connect with more people than ever before. And we have never been more isolated as a people. Do you see that happening? We have the ability to connect. I watched the fight in Las Vegas on, through somebody else's phone on my phone. Like we have this incredible ability to connect. And yet we're incredibly isolated and lonely. This past weekend, I listened to a speaker um, uh, from Australia, this, this really wild guy. His name is Michael Frost. And he brought up the idea of uh, the, the issue of racial tension in America, whether you like it or not, there's this issue that, that exists here. And, and he said, how can we ever, how can our country ever hope to address the issue of racial tension when we don't even know our neighbors' names? Why? Where's our focus? Too easily distracted. Would someone with their focus on this have seen my sister walking down the middle of the road? And in the midst of all this, Jesus comes behind us, alongside us. He puts us into this position to see, to really see, and we are going to try to not see. We're going to try to focus on everything else, but he gives us this position of, of sight. I want you to see what I'm seeing. And he comes along beside us and he whispers in our ear. I love it. It's, it's Matthew 7, verse 12. It, it really could be summed up in that first word, but I'll read the whole thing. You know it as the golden rule. It is, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence. Remember we talked about at the very beginning, what are those core teachings of Jesus that we're supposed to fill our lives with and then teach others? Jesus says, this is the essence of all of those teachings. The essence of what does it mean to do right, to be righteous? Jesus says, is to do to others what you would like them to do to you. 
And Christians, we sometimes reduce this, this phrase to, um, in, in Latin, uh, you, you've maybe heard it, it's primum non nocere, and, and uh, do you know what that means? I looked it up too, it's okay. But we, we take this phrase, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you, and we reduce it to do no harm. We take a very active phrase that says do, and we reduce it to a very passive phrase of do no harm. Do no harm uh, allows us to keep our distance. Uh, we lock our doors. Do no harm uh, says that, that we should keep to ourselves. Do no harm is, is the priest and the Levite who passed the man on the road in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? This do no harm gives us permission to, to step out of the story. Do no harm gives us permission to, to focus purely on Jesus and ignore everyone and everything else, including my sister. How many cars do you think passed her that day? Well, I didn't do any harm. At a point in his life, uh, there's this story where Jesus comes to a fig tree planted in a garden. And fig trees are, are, are these kind of um, high-producing trees. They're actually yielding about three crops a year. And so figs are become this very common thing. And when you see a fig tree, it's, it's, it's a place you go when you're hungry. And so Jesus is, is feeling these hungry, hunger pains, and he walks up to this fig tree Shows up hungry, shows up looking to be filled, and what does he find? He finds that the tree is empty. It's it it it, and it's not just out of season; it's just not producing. And Jesus does something totally out of character. He curses this tree, and it shrivels up and dies. Like that doesn't seem very Christ-like. But there's an important message, and you almost hear the, the tree almost takes on a voice of its own in this story. You, you could almost, the, Disney would do a great, better job of this, but, but the tree almost cries out to Jesus, this is not fair. Why are you cursing me? I, I never did any harm to anyone. And Jesus replies, but what good did you do? What right did you do? In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Remember the definition of righteous, that state of being as we ought to be. The Bible says it's a sin to have some ability, to have some opportunity to do for someone else and make nothing of it. Do nothing. It is a sin to just take up space in the garden. And Jesus turns to us. His disciples, his church, he draws us out of the crowd. He draws us from the world, and he turns us back towards the world so we would see what he sees. 
He puts his disciples in a position to, to see the crowds who are desperate and hungry. He, he, puts his, he puts us in a position to see our coworkers and, and family members and waiters and flight attendants in a whole new way. To see people we just bump into on the street, to, to see poor and rich to people who speak with, with a different language, with different words than us, who wear different clothes than us. He puts us in a position, a very unique position, to see tragedy in Nepal in a completely different way. Am I right? He calls us out of the crowd, and he shows us the city of Baltimore. And ask, are you seeing what I'm See, Jesus draws us from his immediate circle and points us towards the, the Bruce Jenners of our world. I don't know if you guys know anything about that story. Jesus intentionally aims us, points us to the, to the lesbian and gay and uh, the LGBT community. A community that the church has forever said, no, you are not anywhere near us, around us. We turn our back on you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to turn and face the world. Turn and see these nations. Turn and see these people the same way I do. And as he turns us, as he draws us out of the crowd and gives us this, this command to teach, this command to uh, he whispers in our ear, just like I whispered in AJ's ear. He whispers the word, go, make, teach, and do. And one day, we will all stand before God. And as he looks over the record of our life, he's not going to ask, well, have you done no harm? He is going to ask. He's going to ask this church. What good, what righteous have you done? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, at the beginning of that great teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is righteous. And what he's saying essentially is that uh, if you and Jesus go out to eat and the waiter shows up at the table and says, what would you like? He hands you a menu. He, he says basically this idea of hungering, thirsting for righteous, hungering, hungering and thirsting for what is right. Basically, he says, when Jesus orders, you order the same thing. What Jesus is hungry for, that's what you're hungry for. It's not enough for us to just hunger for God. We must hunger for what God hungers for, for the same reasons he hungers for it. And so um, now we're going to enter into a, a time of communion, a, a time of response um, this next phase is in just a moment we're going to have tables and they, well the tables are ready at the back and they have uh, the bread which, 
which represents the body of Christ, and the blood, the, we have the juice that represents his blood poured out for us for our, for our forgiveness. But today, communion is really a, a time for you to take the headphones off, to, to put the screens down, to focus on Jesus to really ask yourself, with all the images that Fox News and CNN present to us, are your desires Jesus' desires? Would you, do you want the same things that Jesus wants for our world? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do you want what He wants, and do you want those things for the same reasons He does? And so, as we take communion, this is a time to to focus again on Christ, to pour him into your life, into the, the inner castle of your heart, but also a time to focus on others. Because as you focus on Christ, he draws you up out of that crowd and he turns you towards others. And, and maybe today, during this time of communion, what better way to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ than to reconcile yourself to your husband or your wife? Maybe you just haven't been there. Maybe your focus has been on every other thing. Maybe it's time just to say, I'm sorry. Maybe dads, it's a, it's a time. Maybe you've been working lots of nights and weekends and overtime. Maybe it's time you just, during this time, maybe you just need to go out of this room, go pick up your kids and say, I'm sorry. I'm here to focus on you. And the last part of our communion time is just to ask yourself, what good, what right, what righteous am I doing? Am I, am I participating in? What, what wrong am I correcting? What hurt am I healing? Maybe ask yourself, remember the story about the empty house. What am I really feeling, filling my life with? So in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. And uh, I just invite you, we just, this is just an open space. And so uh, if this is a space, then you need to respond or we can pray for you or serve you. We want to do that. Maybe God's put it on your heart to give your life to Christ and uh, are ready to be baptized in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for forgiveness of your sins so you would have new life, then we could do that too. That's why we're here. And I'll move to the back corner to receive you if you have a special need. But now's just a time for communion, to consider Christ and to consider those whom Christ considers. So I'm going to say a prayer and then I'll dismiss you to your tables and uh, if you want to sit in your own spot and, and have your own quiet time, that's great. If God's calling you to circle up with a group of friends, then I invite you to do that as well. This is just space for you to commune with God and with each other. So I'm going to say a prayer, and I'll dismiss you. Father God, I thank you so much for, the, for this church, for this crew, for the power of your words. I pray that we would, uh, we would take to heart your teachings about being righteous. God, that's who you, 
who you are and who you have created us to be. You, even as we say that word, there is something in us that, that, that begins to vibrate, that begins to hum, because we know that's who you created us to be. And so, Father God, we ask your forgiveness for all the times we have, we have chosen to ignore, we've chosen to focus on other things, we've chosen to be distracted. Father God, give us the sight to see others and, and to do unto them. To, to move intentionally, to, to see with the same eyes that you have, to see our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, to see our, wor- our world with compassion and with love and with sincerity. And so, Father God, let us, uh, let us focus on you, but also let our focus be on this world that you love so much. Father God, that is, that is what it means to commune, to give our whole lives to you. And as we take this this bread, and as we drink this cup, we remember the sacrifice of your son who came to to turn us around, came to free us from sin, came so that we would desire the same things that you desire. Father God, in this moment, in these these few moments, I pray that that marriages would be healed, that relationships would be healed, that that dark corners of our life would be rooted out, that In these moments, Father God, our houses would be filled with life. Father God, we love you. We believe this is possible only through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says, amen. So I invite you to stand up and enjoy a time of communion. And our team will be back up to lead us in worship in just a moment.